Uh, just wanted to share with you this morning, Tony Ellswick is going to be preaching for us. He's done this uh, several times in the past, always uh, insightful, most of the time entertaining. So it'll be, uh, we're looking forward to see uh, Tony today. Tony and Amber and their family are preparing uh, over the next year to move to Nicaragua to be full-time missionaries. And one of the things that Tony is going to be involved in is helping to plant churches down there. And so this kind of experience is invaluable to him. So as we always say, I'll start to say these young guys, but everybody in the building would be described like that to me, all of you young guys. But but Tony's, yeah, he's one of the young guys. Uh, just uh, getting through seminary and all that. So uh, pray for him as he comes today. Smile, laugh at his jokes, all that good stuff. If they're funny, don't laugh if they're not funny because we don't want to encourage him. But uh, if they're funny, laugh and uh, just encourage him today as he as he. Our scripture this morning comes from John three sixteen through twenty one, and First Corinthians chapter thirteen verse six. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen and that his works have been carried out in God. And then from 1 Corinthians It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Like I said, uh, they said before, my name's Tony. It's my pleasure to bring the message this morning. And uh, as they all said, we're on our way to Nicaragua, moving our family over there to be missionaries. And I know some of you may be interested in and then a little short update on where we are. So uh, we have got about 20% of our uh, support raising goals already, which is really encouraging. And uh, also Drew had mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Redeemer and Trinity were kind of teaming up to form an apprenticeship internship for me so that uh, I could leave my position at the hospital and receive training and you know, focus on support raising over the next year. And so that has started. So I was able to uh, leave the hospital last Wednesday and, and start at the church here on Thursday. So that's been really exciting for us. And we're very grateful for, for everybody's love and support uh, in this process. Uh, our passage today is, of course, 1 Corinthians 13. And we're continuing in the series, the passage commonly known as the love passage. And this week we're specifically talking about verse 6. It, meaning love, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And it's a short passage, uh, but I think it has a lot to say to us. And so we're going to uh, first look to ask the question, what is the truth? Then we're going to say, what is, what is the difficulty of rejoicing with the truth? And then finally, we're going to look at the connection between love and truth and try to answer the question, well, why does love rejoice with the truth? So first... We need to define what truth is because 
Because truth is a pretty nebulous idea sometimes. Uh, Most of the time when we think about truth, we think about honesty. So when we hear the passage, we might think that what the passage is saying is that that love rejoices with honesty. And that seems straightforward enough uh, at first glance. But as you dive a little deeper, uh, you can see that honesty is also a pretty shady concept sometimes, right? Because for instance, one example, on one hand, you have honesty, but on the other hand, you have manners. And so when we think about honesty and truth, it's factual correctness. But then with manners tells us that sometimes we have to uh, withhold part of the truth in order to not be rude and hurtful. So uh, when I was going into the sixth grade, my family moved to Fort Lauderdale to be close to my Cuban side of the family because uh, I am half Cuban, maybe a shock. But uh, we moved down there. We started celebrating Christmas Hispanic style with a celebration called Noche Buena. And uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, is you stay up real late on Christmas Eve till 12.01, and then you open up your presents real early on Christmas morning. So uh, my Cuban grandmother, who was a very awesome lady in many ways, um, had a tendency to buy me and my brother shirts for Christmas. And uh, like I said, she had a lot of great qualities, but... Men's fashion, or at least teenage boy fashion, was not one of her her areas of strength. And so she would always buy us just the most awful shirts. And you're just like, I don't even know why the store is still selling these shirts. But she would somehow find them and give them to us. And they were bad. They weren't quite Ralphie from Christmas Story bad. I don't know if you remember that. We had to dress up like in the bunny rabbit. But it was, it was pretty close. So, as was the case, every Christmas, 1201, my grandmother would, would give us her present. We would open it up, and there would be the shirt. And, of course, the worse the gift, the more earnest the question, how do you like it? Right? And so, in that situation, what, what is the appropriate Christian response to that? Is it the truth, or is it manners? I mean... Probably at the only person who was to tell me to rejoice with the truth at that time is my brother, you know, because he just doesn't want to get the shirt next Christmas either. So he's like, go on, Tony, tell her the truth. But, but for the rest of us, we have to ask those questions. And sometimes we, we hear the, the question with the honesty another way. We say, is it okay to lie to save someone's life? It's not just an academic question. It's happened in history with the Holocaust where people were hiding Jews and they had to ask that question. Um, You see it in the Bible with Rahab. She hid the Jewish spies and then she had to lie about it. And another instance was in Exodus where Pharaoh, he didn't like all the Jewish babies being born. So he grabbed the midwives and he says, okay, here's the deal. When the babies are being born, you kill them. And so the midwives go and they don't do that. And so he's noticing all the babies being born and calls the midwives back to him. He says, what's going on? Why why aren't these babies being killed? And the midwife said, well, you know those Jewish ladies, they pop out babies so fast, by the time we get there, we can't do anything about it. They lied. And the Bible even says that, that God blessed them for it. And so, so those questions of honesty can sometimes be difficult. And I think that they take wisdom to know how to navigate that and, and searching your conscience to know how to deal with that. But I don't think that what Paul is talking about here is that question of honesty. He's talking about truth. And I think the truth that he's talking about here is, is the greater reality of life. 
What, what is really going on? So honesty is telling the truth and so the, the telling people what the reality is. And that's what we're talking about. What is that reality? So, uh, you know, the question is, okay, then what is that reality? Because there's a lot of things that we know that are true but aren't necessarily this greater overarching reality. So, for instance, it is true that the earth orbits the sun. That is truth. But I don't think that what Paul's saying is rejoice with specific fact. And it's true that I drive a Toyota Corolla, but again, he's not talking about rejoicing with impersonal data, even though it may very well be true. The truth that we are to rejoice in is the ultimate storyline of what God is doing in the universe. And this reality, I think, can be outlined fairly easily with the points uh, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Right? God created the world and it was perfect. Then there was a fall because... Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And because of that, it brought sin in the world. And then Christ came. And he lived a perfect life. And he died as our sacrifice to redeem us. And then one day he's going to come again. And he's going to make all things perfect. And that's when he restores the world back to what it originally was. To say it another way. The ultimate reality of the universe is that God is actively working to reverse the penalty and effect of sin in the world through Jesus Christ. That's, that's the story. That's what we're a part of. And our own lives and events are just merely subplots of this larger story. And this is what we are to rejoice in. That although in this world there are, there are troubles and there are pain, we can both be made whole and be restored. Okay. So the truth that love rejoices in is not speaking of personal honesty, but is instead referring to the larger reality of history, which is the creation, fall, redemption, restoration narrative. So if that's the truth, why is it difficult for us to rejoice in that truth? And and I think it's difficult to rejoice in that truth because we are busy Rejoicing in something else. Specifically ourselves and our sin. Look at what John says, chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than their light, for their deeds were evil. So the men were rejoicing in darkness rather than rejoicing in light. And we rejoice either in truth or in unrighteousness. Now, if I were to sit you down one-on-one and I were to ask you, you know, what do you enjoy more, truth or unrighteousness? Everybody would say, oh, no, truth, God, yeah, we love that. Uh, But if we dig a little deeper in our lives, sometimes we see that the pattern that we live in and the reality of our lives can speak to a different different answer. Uh, I really enjoyed Jerry Seinfeld, uh, who's a you know, popular comedian. I had one of his CDs in college and just listened to it over the years. I had it, had it memorized. And if you've never heard of Jerry Seinfeld, never listened to him, basically his humor is just kind of a funny commentary on life. And so uh, in one of his routines, he talks about why he thinks humans are dumb. And this is what he says. He says, there are many things you can point to as proof that the human is not smart. But my personal favorite would have to be the that we needed to invent the helmet. What was happening, apparently, was that we were involved in a lot of activities that were cracking our heads. 
we chose not to avoid doing those activities, but instead to come up with some sort of device to help us enable our head-cracking lifestyles. And that's true, right? I mean, the fact that we enjoy head-cracking activities is evidenced by we have helmets. And in the same way, we can know the extent to which we love our sin because we've designed helmets to insulate ourselves from the negative consequences of those sins, right? So we want to get drunk, but that can cause accidents. We could die in those accidents. So we get a designated driver to allow us to get drunk. Uh, I personally want to eat whatever I want to. I like to eat Oreos specifically, but I don't want to get fat. So, you know, luckily the world has come up with these easy diet pills. I can eat whatever I want to, but not have to worry about gaining weight. And when you think about just all of the technology that we have in our lives, how much of it just revolves around in making our lives easier so that we can just relax in our laziness, right? I mean, we have escalators because walking up one flight of stairs, that's just way too much work, you know? And I personally enjoy the ones at the airport that don't even go up. They just go across because, like, finally somebody has solved this walking problem for me. I don't even have to do that. Just stand here and go. We love our sins. We love our head-cracking sin lifestyle. And we guard our sins and we protect them. It's see, sin works subtly in our lives, right? It, it doesn't really tempt us at first in overt ways. We're not walking down the street and then just say, hey, let's go rob a bank or throw Christians to the lions or something like that. No, it just works subtly. And what it does is it works in our heart to change the narrative so that we believe that the story is really about us. Amber, my wife, she really loves period pieces, period movies, you know, like Jane Austen or Downton Abbey. And so uh, a few years ago, we watched a miniseries called The Foresight Saga. Now, uh, spoiler alert, if you have that in your queue at Netflix or you're in the middle of watching it, uh, you can feel free to zone out at this point or play with your iPhone or go to the bathroom because I'm going to reveal some stuff. But uh, the story is about a lot. They have a lot of prominent characters, but there's really two main characters, and it's Soames and Irene. And eventually in the story, they get married, and they have one of these worst marriages ever. They do awful things to each other. Eventually, they get divorced, right? They get remarried, and they each have a child, a boy and a girl. And then eventually the story shifts to the children. And it really, it doesn't have what I thought would be a happy ending. Uh, and I'm personally one of those type of guys who, who really likes happy endings. So, I mean, there's nothing I would love more than watching a Titanic movie where the ship somehow makes it to New York. You know, like, I don't care about history. Throw Superman in there, whatever you have to do. But, but I like happy endings. So I turned to Amber. I was like, what a waste of our time. I mean, it had this sad ending. And she said, oh, no, it wasn't a sad ending. I like, Are you kidding me? Look at the kids. She said, no, the movie was never about the kids. And in the final scene of the movie, Soames and Irene, they share this look. And they, they make peace with each other. So it was really a happy ending. But I had gotten lost in the compelling subplot. And we all get lost in the subplot of our lives because it screams at us kind of with a false urgency like your cell phone ringing at dinner. And you try to ignore it, but it keeps ringing. And so you start to become convinced that what is really important is the phone. And then you miss out on dinner. In 2 Kings 5, there's a story of someone who really misses the plot in a big way. Uh, We're going to be reading kind of 
large chunks of that. So if you want to grab the Pew Bible in front of you, or if you brought your Bible and want to turn there, otherwise you can just listen to me as I read it. But it's Second Kings 5. We're going to be in verse 15. And as you turn there, I'll just kind of give you the background of part of the story that you, you know, we're not going to read. So the story revolves around Naaman. And Naaman is a Syrian general who gets leprosy. And he goes to Israel, and he's trying to get healed, and eventually finds his way to the prophet Elisha, and he asks Elisha to heal him. And Elisha doesn't even go down and see him, sends a servant, says, go, go bathe in the Jordan River seven times, and you'll be fine. So Naaman gets upset. He's not going to do it at first, but then changes his mind, and goes and washes himself, and you know, he gets healed, and it's pretty amazing. And so we pick up the story in verse 15. Then he, meaning Naaman, returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before Elisha, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he, Elisha, said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So an incredible thing just happens at that part of the story, right? You have this, this powerful man who God heals and saves in an amazing way. And throughout this part of the story, Elisha is just behaving in a total selfless way in order to make God prominent in the story. He wants Naaman to know that it's God who's doing the healing and not him. And Naaman gets it. He understands. And he, and he gets healed and he gets saved. And, and we see all the components of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Because you know, God created Naaman. The effects of the fall was that Naaman got leprosy. But God restored Naaman's body. And, and he redeemed his soul. And it was just an amazing story, right? But there was one person there who didn't understand the story. Or at least he didn't, really, he didn't really care too much about the main narrative of what was happening. His name was Gehazi. So if you're still there, skip down a couple of verses. We're going to pick up the story at verse 20. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he, uh, Gehazi, said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver. That's about $10,000. And two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But Elisha said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? 
Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. See, Gehazi looked at the situation and the sin started to woo him. It said, it said now's your ta- time. Now's your chance to just get a little bit ahead. And Gehazi decided he, he wasn't going to, to love Naaman or care about you know, what was going on in Naaman's life. He was going to further his own life and his own agenda. And so he ran after Naaman and he got some money out of the deal. And you could probably imagine him, right, walking back, you know, just happy with himself, thinking about how he's going to spend this money. You know, and what was he doing? He was, he was rejoicing in unrighteousness. He was rejoicing in the darkness. He knew what he was doing was wrong because he hid the money so that nobody else would know what happened. I mean, he was being a great example of, of John 3.20 where it says, For everyone who does evil hates the light. It does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So he, he hides the money. Where did you go? I didn't go anywhere. That's what he said. Gehazi's sin hated the light, the light. But there was a penalty and a judgment for his actions. And he ended up getting more than what he bargained for. But before we judge Gehazi too harshly, let's remember that we act the same way as him. I mean, how often do we seek our own good? Gehazi was probably just sitting there thinking, who's this going to hurt? The general has more than enough money, and he's happy to give it away, right? And when he goes to to Naaman, he even comes up with a plausible story because he wants to save Elisha's reputation. And we've all been in Gehazi's shoes, seeing ourselves in our agenda as more important than they really are, advancing our own cause at the expense of God's glory. We've all believed that the story unfolding around us is is my story. And that's why it's so hard to love. How can we not insist in our own way if we believe that the story is about our own way? How can we not be resentful if I'm the protagonist and everyone who stands in the way of my happiness is the antagonist? Of course, we're not going to be patient if love is going to cause us and miss out on the the treasures of this life. But the problem is that our story is not the main plot line. We're just subplots in the bigger reality of the creation, fall, redemption, restoration storyline. All right. So we've talked about what the truth is. We said it, it's, it's the overarching plot line of the story of our lives. And we define it as God's work in creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And, and then we looked at how in our enjoyment of sin, we make the story about us. And therefore, we're unable to love. So now that all that's left to ask is, why is rejoicing with the truth loving? Let's turn back to our text in John 3. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 
He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Think Gehazi there. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And there we think about Elisha selflessly healing Naaman in a way to point to God. Let's focus a second on verse 17. It says, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So here it tells us that Jesus was coming to save the world, and we know it needed to be saved because of the fall, right? So God created the world perfect and without sin, and Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden released sin into the world. After the fall, we are in a pretty precarious state. God was separated from us because of our sin. And because God is good and righteous, he's a good and righteous judge, he has to punish our sin. Imagine for a moment that somebody, your neighbor comes in, robs your house, ties you up, beats you up. And then, right, the cops come, they catch the guy, bring him before the judge, and the judge says, well, you've been a pretty good guy, you've given a lot of money to charity, you volunteer, I'm just going to go ahead and let you off. You'd be outraged, right? Because sure, the guy did a lot of good things, but he robbed you. He needs to be punished. But then let's imagine that that guy goes and he does it again. He goes, he leaves the courthouse, gets off scot-free, goes to your house, beats you up again, robs you. You know, by this point, you need to get a security guard or something. But beats you up again and gets caught again, goes before the judge again, and the judge lets him off again. I mean, what are you going to say? You're going to say that, that the judge is a crook. He's not a good judge. He's not an honest judge. And that's the problem we have before God, because he is a good judge. And that's the problem where humanity is. In our sins, we've committed crimes against God. And because he is a good judge, he can't just let them off. He can't just say, oh, well, you've done a lot of good things, so we'll just push that to the side. There has to be justice. And so Jesus came and lived a perfect life without sin so that he would be an acceptable sacrifice in our place, so that the wrath of God for our sins would be extinguished on Jesus and the righteousness uh, of God would be given to us through faith. So that, as it says in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. See, God, as a judge, is vindicated for punishing evil, but his mercy is also vindicated in saving those who believe in him. Here's how Paul says it in Romans 3, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's a sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sin. So God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, right, by faithfully punishing sin in Christ, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is, by applying Christ's righteousness 
as our own through our faith. So you see, love rejoices in the truth because it is only through believing in Christ that we can be saved. It's to say, through believing the truth of God's work, the, the, the ultimate reality in the universe, we can be saved from God's punishment. We were in trouble, but God redeemed us. He offers us salvation, a pardon from our sins, and then eternal life. Because of his love, we are given the truth. Then in saving us, he makes us new, and we're then able to selflessly pursue good works. We can love and be a part of the light. The truth frees us to love. When we are, by grace, forgiven of our sins, we can become wrapped up in the true storyline that the plot is about God's work and not about us. We are able to be patient because we're not quickly pursuing our own vision. And, but we're working out God's plan to redeem us and restore the world. When we understand the plot, we are less concerned with those who wrong us and are more concerned with how we can help advance God's goals. And the best example of someone submitting to God's goal rather than advancing what would be their own earthly agenda is, of course, Jesus. Look first at Luke 4, 5 through 8, where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. And this is what it says. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdom, kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him and said, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, Jesus turned down an earthly kingdom. He turned down earthly fame, earthly fortune, to to further the glory of God. Of course, we see it again, fast-forwarding, to John 17, just after the Last Supper. This is what it says. And he came, meaning Jesus, and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed. And when he came to this place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. See, here in Jesus' prayer, we see him pointing to the true narrative of the universe. He is about to do the greatest act of love the universe would ever know. He is about to face the cross. And there is nothing obligating Christ to go to the cross. He he doesn't have to do it. If If he wanted to, he could have just left and gone back to heaven right then. But he didn't do that. He went to the cross. And although he was under no obligation, yet he was still compelled to go to the cross for love. So here is Christ writing with his life and his blood the story which we're talking about now. Here he is at the point of redemption and he says, he says not my will, but yours. He's not furthering a selfish agenda, but the creation, fall, redemption, restoration storyline. And how do we respond to that? Too often we see Christ, right, going to the cross, submitting to the Father. And meanwhile, we come over here and we join Gehazi, plotting how we can get more treasure. And here's the love. That Christ 
sacrifice was in our place so that now when we stand before God, the righteous judge, we're not counted as Gehazi, but as Christ. And now if we believe in him, we are forgiven and we can be redeemed. You see, we are not the main character. We are not the protagonist. God is. And the truth of what he has done for us is the ultimate truth to rejoice with. Its glory far surpasses that of our own stories. And as we believe the truth, when we understand our place in the story, we are wonderfully free to love. We're no longer bound by the list of grievances caused by other people because we're not busy trying to promote our own lives. We're willing to wait patiently with others because we're not busy running down our own path. We are free to love our enemies because we were once enemies of God, freely forgiven. And, you know, if you've never asked Christ to forgive you of your sins, if you've never believed in him, I would invite you to do that today. Because Christ came not to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. And for those who have believed and have been saved by God's graciousness, let's go today rejoicing with the truth that the storyline of our lives is merely the subplot. And let's be happy and full with joy and the freedom that that gives us to love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have a plan that's bigger than anything that we could come up with. We thank you that your, your grace is more amazing than anything we could dare to, to hope or to believe. And Lord, we pray that as we go through this week, that we would not be focused on, on the things going on in our life, whether good or bad, but that we would rejoice in what you are doing in this world to redeem the world and to restore it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Tony, and I uh, appreciate the word today. And I would encourage you to get together, if you haven't heard the, the plans that uh, Tony and Amber and their family have, uh, get together with them. They'll buy you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Uh, so it's worth the price of admission to hear the, hear the story. It's a great, uh, great plan they have. So thank you, Tony, and, and God bless you. Uh, this week, as we, we've talked about God's love, I just want to share this verse with you. Uh, as we leave today, as we close, this is from Zephaniah three seventeen. The Lord your God is with you; He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. God bless you.